0: Hello and welcome to the History of Voting podcast from One Nation, Every Vote. One Nation, Every Vote can be found at 1v.vote, that is O-N-E-V dot V-O-T-E. This podcast lives there as well as stories of voting throughout American history and resources helped get out the vote this November for the midterm elections. Today we're getting into the largest single expansion of the right to vote in American history. It was a movement that granted the ballot to tens of millions of people who comprised over half the population of the country. It was the women's suffrage movement. It was not a simple or easy journey for this movement, as we'll hear today. It lasted decades, from the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, purportedly, to the passage of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution in 1920. And that victory was not easy or assured. The first constitutional amendment to grant women the right to vote was introduced to the Senate in 1878 and went nowhere. It failed again in 1918, despite support from President Woodrow Wilson and despite having already passed the House of Representatives. The Senate failed to pass the amendment by only two votes in September 1918, and in February 1919, voted on it again in the lame duck session, and again it failed, this time by a single vote. However, the movement benefited from bipartisan support at that point. The new Congress voted on the amendment again in 1919, and this time it passed the Senate overwhelmingly, 56 to 25. A year later, Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify it by a single vote, I should add, and the amendment entered the Constitution. Women could finally vote. It was the culmination of a long battle that had achieved victory. But was it that simple? Before the 19th Amendment, women already had full suffrage in all states west of the Rockies, in Michigan, and in New York. And women had some voting rights in most others. And after the 19th Amendment, many women were still denied the right to vote. So to explore how the women's suffrage movement grew, how it achieved its goals, and what was left to accomplish after 1920, I spoke with Professor Lisa Tatro. She's at Carnegie Mellon University and is a prize-winning author of works on the women's suffrage movement. Uh, professor, thanks for being here.
1: It's good to be with you. Thank you for this podcast.
0: Um, well, I just want to start by saying, you know, women's suffrage, women used to not have the right to vote um, in you know, the Middle Ages and the colonial era, and now they do. So when would you say this started to become an issue? When did people start thinking, hey, women are people too, and they should have a vote?
1: Uh, from the founding of the nation. Um, as soon as men started arguing they could govern themselves and they didn't need kings to govern them, that logic extended to all kinds of people, um, including women, who would start saying, well, then why do we need men to govern us? Why can't we also be part of our own governance? So, um You had people like Abigail Adams, wife of John Adams uh, at the Continental Congress and eventually a president of the United States saying things like, um, you know, writing her husband when he was at the Continental Congress saying, uh, you know, remember the ladies, which is the famous line. But it often gets thrown away as just that tagline. But in fact, it was a sustained debate between her and John Adams and Mercy Otis Warren about um, her saying, we will not abide by laws in which we have no voice. Um so it it dates really from the founding of the nation. It doesn't really turn into a political movement until a bit later, but um but there are people at you know the revolutionary moment saying why doesn't this self-governance idea extend to women?
0: And one of the interesting things I did not know until I started researching for this podcast is that in New Jersey Uh, In the early days of the Mm -hmm. republic, women could vote. And it seemed to have started um, with just a poor drafting of a law. They didn't anticipate it. But then when it was a close election, candidates got women out to the polls to win the election. But then it got taken away.
1: That's right. Yeah. Women voted in New Jersey until 1807. Um, And voting was something that the, the founding fathers left up to the states. So states could appoint voters. The federal government didn't appoint voters. So it was up to the states to say who could vote. And in New Jersey, they just said all persons can vote. Um, They didn't say male inhabitants like they did in many states. So, um, yeah, women could vote there until 1807, in which case they changed the state constitution to insert men as a, a requirement for voting.
0: The women's suffrage moment, at least as I remember through high school history, it started at Seneca Falls. And your, your book, which I should mention, won the 2015 OAH Mary Jurich Nicholas Book Prize for U.S. Women's and Gender History, is called The Myth of Seneca Falls, Memory and the Women's Suffrage Movement, mm-hmm. 1848 to 1898. So what happened at Seneca Falls, for those who aren't aware of it, and why, why is, might this be more of a myth than a, a real turning point in our history?
1: I use the term "myth"' not to say that it 's a false event because it actually took place, but more to talk about how it became a really powerful story um, so and and the effects of that story on the movement as it went forward throughout the rest of its life but the um, The Seneca Falls Convention for those people don 't know it was the first uh, sort of publicly organized women's rights convention in the United States. And it was held in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848 in the Finger Lakes District. And it was organized uh, by a bunch of abolitionists. The women's rights movement was already taking shape in uh, the abolition movement. uh, And women started to think, you know, we should also have conventions for our own wrongs. In other words, you know, to protest the the wrongs against women. So they held the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls. It was very hastily organized. um, And about 300 people showed up. Uh, It was just posted in the local newspaper. They fretted that no one would turn out. And in fact, 300 people turned out. We don't know all the people who were there. Um, It sort of drew from the local population. But we do know a lot of uh, leading luminaries who were there. Um, And they were really prominent abolitionists like Lucretia Mott, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who would quickly become known more as a women's rights activist than an abolitionist, uh, Frederick Douglass, the great um, uh, abolitionist who lived just up the road in Rochester, New York, uh, and some others, and they um, they drafted a declaration called the Declaration of Sentiments, which was their sort of um, manifesto. Uh, it listed all their rights and all their grievances, and they modeled it after the Declaration of Independence. So it it began in some of its opening lines. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal.
0: So there was a convention, there was a declaration. How did it become um, a a story? How did it become a myth that would have a greater uh, place in our politics?
1: Yeah. So the convention definitely took place and it was definitely significant. There's no doubt about that, but it is today celebrated as the sort of seminal watershed moment in American feminism that birthed a women's rights movement in the United States and was indeed the beginning of feminism. And that's a much different claim. So I was really interested in why that story and the story has unbelievable power and it does a lot of really damaging things, including erasing women of color. Um, and so my quest was to figure out where does this story come from? When do people start arguing that this was the, you know, the shiznit of uh, of feminism and, um, my uh, my conclusion was that they don't actually start doing that until Stanton and Anthony basically popularized the story uh, after the American Civil War over the 1870s and the 1880s as a tactic to try to get people to come over their, to their side, because there are all of these divisions in the post-war suffrage movement, and Stanton and Anthony want to argue that people should follow them and not all of the other uh, folks who are going off in other directions. And one of the things they say is, since Elizabeth Cady Stanton was at Seneca Falls, the movement began there, therefore I am the movement, uh, and you should follow me. Uh, and so that argument really gets created later, and it's really in response to a whole host of post-war organizing challenges that Stanton and Anthony, um, two leading suffragists, face. And they use the story as a kind of political weapon. Um, and it, uh, it narrows the story really dramatically to Stanton and Anthony themselves. Um, and after a while, people would just start putting Anthony at the, at the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, which still happens today.
0: That's really interesting because movements, both social movements or, or political movements and political parties, they, almost all of them have some kind of origin story. And what you often try to yeah. do is work your way into that origin story by some kind of connection. Okay. Yeah. So, and so
1: what I was interested in is how does, how does narrative work in social movements, right? Narrative is really important. Controlling the story matters a lot. And so what I was curious in is how did that story get wielded as a weapon?
0: And how how did it? So it, it made the leaders more prominent, but how did it have an effect on the suffrage movement of trying to actually get rights to vote? Did it make it more unified and therefore effective, or did it exclude uh, certain groups or certain viewpoints and that may have delayed the eventual passage of uh, the right to vote?
1: You know, I don't know how the story may have delayed, Uh, you know, there's no way really to measure that. But um, I think that the story of Seneca Falls became incredibly important in unifying uh, at least white suffragists around um, what became a really protracted struggle. I mean, the the fight for women's right to the vote lasts for 75 years, and it becomes really clear by the 1870s that women are not going to be winning a federal amendment anytime soon. Um And so, I think, in some ways, what the Seneca Falls story does is rally people around a cause, give them a sense of a historic mission, give them a sense of purpose you know when uh, when it becomes very hard to sort of keep the fight alive um, but it it mostly serves white women it doesn't serve other women so it's it's also limited in that sense but
0: so as um Katie Stanton and Susan B. anthony are fighting for this, there is some. There are some victories, mm-hmm. mostly in the Western states. Western states were the first to allow women the right to vote. What was the difference between the West and the East at that point that made it easier in places like Wyoming uh, to pass the right to vote?
1: So, you ask an excellent question, and it's something that historians have not sufficiently answered yet. Um, the first victories would indeed be in the West, as you said. Wyoming would enfranchise women as a territory in 1869. And Utah in 1870 also has a territory. and Then all the states that would grant full women's suffrage before the 1920s, uh, 19th Amendment um, would all be in the West for the most part, with just a few exceptions like New York. There are some books that argue uh, that the West just out-organized the East and that the West, in fact, pioneered a lot of the winning tactics that would eventually be used. But uh, again, we, we just don't have clear answers as to why that is. Um, it's one of the failings of the literature, I think.
0: Later on in the East and across the country, what what were the tactics that started to come into play in the 1890s and 1900s as, as they're starting to win or as they're starting to build the momentum to win?
1: Yeah. So again, what you're talking about, they, you're talking here more largely about a white women's rights movement. Um, so, the momentum to win would be to win the 19th Amendment, um, and the 19th Amendment would only enfranchise a very limited number of women, um, a large number of women, but a limited num- uh, type of women. Yeah, so the the period of about the 1890s turns into uh, being a kind of period of victories out in the West, and then just no victories at all. And the period from the 1890s to the 1910s or so is known as the doldrums, when there just wasn't a whole lot of momentum and a whole lot of victory. And then things really picked up in the 19-teens and uh, up to the 1920 19th Amendment victory. And there, um, the movement is constantly divided. It's rarely united. And there you had uh, a group of people in Carrie Chapman Katz National Association, National American Women's Suffrage Association. People just pronounce that acronym and they call it NAWSA, N-A-W-S-A. And they were doing things like lobbying on the ground trying to put in place a really good ground game, trying to persuade uh, you know, legislators, trying to work on persuasion in legislators, uh, congresspeople at the U.S. level and also at the state level. And then you had this other group of people, led, um, generally people say by Alice Paul and the National Women's Party, who were tired of being supplicants. Their idea was um, we should just take this fight straight to their face. Uh, and they start doing things like launching suffrage parades, uh, they launch a parade quite audaciously on the inauguration day of Woodrow Wilson, trying to draw away crowds so that Woodrow Wilson, being inaugurated president, nobody would show up for his inauguration, and they'd all show up for the suffrage parade. Um, and they were quite successful. The crowd ends up attacking the the women in the parade, and several of them end up in the hospital and their arrests. And, and then they do things like they start picketing the White House, uh, and they start listing. Um, and then when the United States enters World War I, Alice Paul continues to pick at the White House, um, and people would just show up consistently and stand out on the sidewalk with banners. And eventually they started using Woodrow Wilson's own words about why we were fighting in World War I, um, you know, for freedom and democracy. And then they would point out the the irony that women or the hypocrisy that we were fighting for democracy abroad but not granting it at home. And they would be arrested and jailed, um, and they would end up on a hunger strike. And those two sides warred with one another. But in the end, both of their tactics were really essential because I think the militants really brought the fight um, to a kind of public visibility in a way that it had started to become kind of state. But the, the folks in NASA, in the National American Woman Suffrage Association, they really laid the ground game that was really critical to passing some states. Some states passed full women's suffrage before the 19th Amendment. And then those states have women voters who then vote out uh, representatives who won't vote for women's suffrage. Um, and then also they do a lot for the ratification fight. They do a lot to get um, ratification through because even once 19th Amendment passes Congress, it has to go to the states for ratification. And that itself was a wild and um, crazy fight.
0: OK, so the 19th Amendment has passed. Uh, Some women have the right to vote. What happened after that? Why do you think that the fight and the win was was not finished at that point?
1: Well, lots and lots of women of color could still not vote. So there were all kinds of restrictions on voting. Remember, the states controlled who voters were. And so many states had in their constitutions that voters had to be male. And the only thing the 19th Amendment does is say that you cannot say that voters have to be male. It just says you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. That's all it says. So it strips the male qualification from state constitutions that still have them, but it does not strip all the other qualifications that states still have, including poll taxes, literacy tests, um, grandfather clauses, all those things still exist in the Deep South and the Upper South. So lots and lots of black women still cannot vote because they're barred by all the things that black men are barred by. Um, Native women can't vote. Uh, Many, many, uh, the United States has a really complicated relationship to um, indigenous people. Indigenous people and women wouldn't be able to vote in the United States until 1947 fully. Um, The United States barred uh, Chinese uh, folks from voting in the 1880s and barred Japanese people from voting in the 1920s. So Asian women uh, wouldn't fully be allowed to vote in the United States until 1952. Um, So there are all kinds of different ways in which – Women of color, and then really the Voting Rights Act of 1964 would finally allow women of color, uh, black women in the in the South, to vote. Um, so there were all kinds of ways in which states continued to restrict voting, but just not on the basis of sex. Um, they would restrict it on basis of race, generally.
0: The the women's rights movement, the women's suffrage movement, I guess at this point, did that continue after the 19th Amendment, or were there enough women, white women? who said that they were finished, they had won, and that they were stopping. I mean, I'm guessing the question is, did the women's suffrage movement end at the 19th Amendment, or did it evolve into something else?
1: So the women's suffrage movement that you could see, the sort of big, massive organization with NASA and the National Women's Party and all of that
0: concludes.
1: um, And when women of color come to those organizations after the 19th Amendment is ratified in 1920 and say, um, you know, we can't vote, can you help us? And they say no. Uh, They say, no, you know, that's a race issue. That's not a that's not a voting issue. So we're not concerned about that. Um, So it's a really ugly chapter. And those different organizations just reorganize. uh, So NAFA, which is this massive organization, reorganizes its illegal women voters. So they basically say, if we're going to have, uh, you know, voting in the United States, we ought to have educated voters. So they organize as the legal of Women voters. And then the National Women's Party um, turns and introduces in 1923 the Equal Rights Amendment, the very first uh, iteration of the Equal Rights Amendment, which still has not been ratified. Um, and so they turn their fights to other things. That does not mean that a suffrage movement is not that suffrage movement is over. But there are still lots of women fighting for the right to vote. There'll be women who will try to go to the polls in the South and get registered. They'll be beaten. Um, There'll be women who will try to go to the polls in other places. Women of color, Um, and so they continue to launch a women's suffrage movement, um, just in usually inside of other organizations, sort of inside civil rights organizations or indigenous people organizations. but uh, so, it, the suffrage movement, the one we 're used to seeing, the really big one that involved largely white women, that one does conclude, but women 's fight for the vote does not end
0: so this is the the history of voting in America. but how did the u s compare internationally? Were we a leader in women 's suffrage, or were we uh, a laggard behind European uh, countries or countries elsewhere in the world?
1: We were in the middle. Um, I would say uh, there were other places that enfranchised women much earlier than we did, uh, including um, much to uh, U.S. dismay Russia um, and uh, New, um, uh, New Zealand was one of the first in the 1890s. But again, it depends on how you measure it. If you measure it by 1920, that puts you sort of in the middle of you measure it by 1960. You know, the 1965 Voter Rights Act, that puts you quite late in the pack. So it depends on how you measure it.
0: So when women won the right to vote, did they form a voting bloc? Was there an effect on the parties or the policies that the parties adopted as a result of this huge amount of new voters in our system?
1: Amazingly and uh, also unsurprisingly, no. Um, it turned out that women like men are of varied political backgrounds and varied political interests, and they voted all over the map. in uh, it a lot of people then argued that the vote was, in fact, not very uh, effective, that because women didn't form a voting bloc, that they really squandered their power. Um, and so a lot of people have sort of said, well, the vote didn't turn out to be that significant or it wasn't really that important because um, because they didn't vote in a block. But in fact, um, it just turns out that women are as, as varied politically as men are.
0: So the fight to win the right to vote, I mean, we call it the fight. If you were living back then – how visible and how dramatic would this movement have been?
1: By the 19-teens, it would have been very visible and dramatic. And it would have been earlier, too, but in different ways. But by the 19-teens, it is incredibly visible and dramatic and making front-page headlines. I don't know about front-page headlines, but it's making headlines. And a number of women um, start uh, in these militant tactics to die while they're campaigning for the right to vote. Inez Mulholland goes on a very... um, Arduous and extensive speaking tour in the West, and dies uh, while she's speaking. Um, and uh, uh, other people will as well. They'll go out west to try to um, get ratification, and they will um, they will die in the in the struggle. So it, it was something. Women who went on hunger strikes in prison were force fed so that they didn't die, um, and they came out beleaguered and weak uh, from their hunger strikes. It was it was a physically brutal campaign on top of being just a bold and brash campaign but it it took its toll on the lives of the women who were involved in it and that would be true for women um after this time period too even after the 19th amendment is ratified black women will go to the polls uh, in the south and try to vote or even go to their voter registration offices and they'll routinely be beaten um and in some cases um you know sexually assaulted for their efforts to try to pursue their right to vote. So it's a it's an ugly and brutal history. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think we forget is we often call ourselves a democracy, but we don't often reckon with the ways in which the United States has tried very, very hard to restrict voting um, and has made voting available only really to elite white men. Um, in really profound ways for a very long
0: time. Thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with us. Uh, This was one of the most... Yeah, you're welcome. I
1: hope it was useful.
0: It was. I mean, this is one of the most important episodes in the whole podcast. I mean, we we really appreciate this. Okay. Bye-bye. My thanks to Professor Tatro for speaking with us today. Now, even the women's suffrage movement, one that I thought would be an episode that's relatively straightforward of people want the right to vote, they campaign for the right to vote, they win the right to vote, was more complicated than presented in textbooks. Its backstory was contested by those involved in it and its legacy complex and incomplete. But there was one point which really jumped out at me during this conversation. And that was that the right to vote was won federally in large part because it had already been won in many states. And it's an important point to remember about our federal system. Now, I mentioned the upcoming midterm elections in every episode of this podcast. And I'm sure if you're listening, you've been thinking about those midterms a lot. They're the most imminent major elections, and the impact they will have on our government is a reminder of the importance to be involved in politics. But voting matters and getting involved in the electoral process matters at every stage and in every election, whether it's a primary, a gubernatorial election, or a city election the policies that are shaped by those days at the ballot can serve as the foundation for policies at the national level. And a lot of national policies don't get made unless there's a test case at a state or a city that elected officials can point to as evidence of why it matters. So we really hope that you get out to vote on November 6th, but we also really hope that you keep getting out to vote for every election after that. Every election matters for one reason or another, and so the votes that determine who wins those elections matter as well thanks for listening this week the producer was Shivangi Bhatia the editor was Spencer Curry my name is Chris Oates thanks and see you next time